0: The Gospel compels us to live in the new and better culture of the Kingdom of God. Privilege to be with you this morning. So blessed to be able to meet today. I feel like we're so blessed to be in this city as well, to be able to live in such a diverse place where many of us, especially in this room, come from all different types of backgrounds. Uh, We have a clash of cultures at times. As I'm sure you've experienced, things have happened to you in this city. Things have happened to you probably at church, that have to deal with these different cultures that we come here with. Some of us come from an honor-shame culture. Some of our culture, home cultures value rugged individualism. Some of us call soccer football. Some consider badminton a sport, and some of us don't. <laughs> I won't say where I land on that, but maybe that's obvious. And we all have a very diverse background. We come with different cultures, and, and our home culture impacts our lives, it defines who we are and how we interact with each other. Many of the kids who are among us are considered third-culture kids. They're growing up in a culture that's not the same home culture as their parents, and so they're kind of in between these two cultures. They form a third culture, where it actually can be difficult to interact with either culture. going to be difficult for kids growing up in this with this experience. But culture is important. It impacts our relationships, and it impacts who we are. Now our passage this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. And we're going to see how the spiritual leaders in the time of Jesus, they had a a culture, a tradition of giving and receiving honor. But this culture that they lived in was not good, and it was not right. Their system forced them to strive for hollow and worthless honor from each other. And not only that, this culture of honoring each other, trying to one-up each other in honor, resulted in the poor, the disabled, and the outcasts being pushed even further down and further away rather than being lifted up and brought in. As we look at Luke chapter 14, I want to refresh our memory of where we are in the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Last fall, we took a break from studying the gospel of Luke as we started preaching from 1 Corinthians for a time. Now, this year in 2022, the plan is that I will be preaching from the gospel of Luke when it's my turn to preach. Other brothers will be preaching from 1 Corinthians and from Isaiah We'll also have some guest preachers mixed in as well as the year goes on, just like we had Ryan uh, came and preached for us last week. Now, the book of Luke, if you remember, it was written by Luke, who's a physician. He's a doctor, and he's writing to a man named Theophilus. The first chapter tells us he's writing this so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It says in chapter 1, verse 4, And then later in chapter 4 of Luke, Luke records the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus is saying about Himself that He came, He's the one who God sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. So this is Jesus' purpose, His mission for being on earth. And then finally we see in chapter 9, verse 51, it says, "...when the days drew near for Him," that is, Jesus, "...to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem." So from chapter 9 until all the way through chapter 14 and continuing on, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. His face is set to go to Jerusalem. The good news for the poor that Jesus came to proclaim is that the Savior has come. That is the good news. And Jesus knows that as the Savior, he must go to Jerusalem to die there on a cross in order to be the Savior, to be a substitute for sinners. Now that we're reoriented somewhat to the Gospel of Luke, let's look at our passage for today. As I read, think about the culture of the Pharisees and how Jesus is in conflict with their culture. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told them a parable. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you will begin with shame. take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet this is God's word now the main message or the big idea of this passage is that gospel compels us to live in the new and better culture of the kingdom of God I have 3 points this morning All three points highlight aspects or characteristics of this gospel culture that we are called to live in. The first point is this the lowly are lifted up and the proud are humbled. For point number one, we'll look at verses 1 to 11. Look there with me again. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So here is the scene. It's a Sabbath day, most likely after a service at the synagogue, and they're going to the house of a Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisees. He's invited Jesus and many others to his house for a party, for a banquet. We know that these parties were not just about having friends over. It wasn't, hey guys, let's all meet at my house. It was all about gaining status from these banquets and these parties. You would invite people of high rank, of as high as you could convince to come to your party. And you would receive elevated status yourself when they came to your house to join your party. And then people who attended your party were then obligated to invite you the next time they had a party. And so it's this constant competition of using each other to try to gain respect and honor and popularity within the community. When we think of it in those terms, it actually reminds me of a lot of social media these days, a competition of trying to use likes and comments and shares that would gain popularity or respect and honor among our community. And we see that at this party, at the end of verse 1, it says they were watching him, they were watching Jesus carefully. So they're not watching Jesus out of respect or out of awe for who he is. They're watching him like a predator would watch its prey, trying to find the right time to pounce, the right time to strike. So they think they have set up that time here. Look at verse 2. It says, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, dropsy is an old term for a medical condition that means swelling. This man had some sort of swelling of the body, a retention of fluid. And this was an uncomfortable condition, but the condition in itself was not life-threatening. However, if, this, if someone did have this condition, it indicated something major going on in their body. Soon, this would be a major deal. So it's not the dropsy or the swelling that is the issue, uh, but it's, it indicates a much deeper issue going on in this man's life. He's at risk health-wise, and it would also be uncomfortable for him and probably not pleasant to look at, depending on how severe it is. His whole body swelling. He would look maybe disfigured or would look odd. So he's definitely not one of the in crowd uh, being part of this group. Now, the common understanding that we see from the Bible is that the Pharisees believed that any type of healing work on the Sabbath was work was defined as work. They were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Just in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus healed a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. He healed her on the Sabbath. In that town, the ruler of the synagogue rebuked the people. He told them, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. So the opinion of the Pharisees and the rulers was that healing should not be done on the Sabbath. So the question here, with this man present with uh, a condition that obviously he needs healing, would Jesus do the same thing? Would he heal the man, or would he suggest to the man that he come back the next day to be healed? And we see in verse 3 that Jesus makes it clear he knows what they're doing. He knows what's going on by asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Notice he asks, is it lawful? He doesn't say, is it merciful? He doesn't say, is it kind or gracious? He says, is it lawful? Because that was what they were focusing on, the law and their interpretation of the law. But we see that they're silent in verse 4. They remain silent. They looked at what Jesus was going to do. They're not going to help him in any way. And they think they have him trapped. If he heals the man, they can say he's in sin. If he doesn't, They could say he's unkind or ungracious. They could accuse him of not having the power to heal the man. But we see that Jesus does heal him. Verse 4 says, Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. But then he asks this question in verse 5. He says, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Jesus knows that if this happened to them they would pull out their son or their ox from the well, even if it was a Sabbath day. It would take work to pull someone out of a well, and especially an ox. That would definitely be considered work, but they would still do it on a Sabbath day. It's very valuable. That person or that animal is very valuable to them, and they know what they would do as well. We see that from verse 6, that they are speechless. They cannot answer Him. They could not reply to His question. Now, there's a few things in this section here, verses 1 to 6, that I think is really important for us to see, and we don't want to to skip over. One of those is that we should not and cannot miss the mercy of God shown through Jesus to this sick man. Jesus heals him. He needed healing, and Jesus did not let the perception, his own perception, he didn't think about what others would think of him. He wasn't worried about what the Pharisees would say about him or even that they would accuse him of being sinful. He still showed mercy to this man and healed him. And another is that Jesus has the authority to interpret God's law. The question here is the interpretation of Old Testament law regarding the Sabbath and whether it's right to heal or not on the Sabbath. The Pharisees have their own interpretation, but they're wrong. Jesus points that out and shows that. Now, Jesus is God, so he should know and he does know what he meant when he gave the Old Testament law. Jesus' interpretation of the law is right and it is just. And thirdly, we also must not miss, we need to see the mercy that Jesus has for the Pharisees as well. He didn't rebuke them strongly. In chapter 13, we see that he calls the leader of the synagogue hypocrite. He calls him a hypocrite, but here it's much more subtle. He's actually teaching them. He's pointing out their flaws in the way that they're thinking and they're acting. He's helping them to notice where they're off and where they are wrong. They don't deserve to be taught by him. They deserve to be rejected. But Jesus shows mercy even to the Pharisees who are trying to trap him, trying to accuse him. He shows mercy by teaching them and pointing out the foolishness of their ways. Now, let's continue to read this section, verse uh, starting in verse 7. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Picture this. Jesus goes to the party, and they're watching him carefully. And here it says that Jesus has actually been watching them carefully and how they interact. So he turns the tables on them. He's noticing them now, and he He says that they shouldn't be fighting. They should not fight over the honorable places at the table. But they should start off by sitting in the low place. They should volunteer to be in the lowest position. Then they have nowhere to go except up. Then they will receive honor when the host comes and and says, oh, no, you shouldn't be there. You You should move up instead of taking the risk of the host moving them down. Verse 11 here is key. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he's saying that the proud will be humbled, and the lowly will be raised up. That's like this point number one. The lowly will be lifted up, and the proud will be humbled. We get this from verse 11. We saw this too with the sick man. Jesus lifted him from sickness and into health. The image of the Pharisee who pulled the story that Jesus said, the question he posed of the Pharisee pulling his son or ox out of the well, even on the Sabbath, that's what Jesus did for the sick man. The humbled, the lowly will be raised up, and the proud will be humbled. Now, I don't think that Jesus is actually trying to help them advance in honor at dinner parties. I don't think his motivation was to to actually give them some keys or some life hacks to be able to advance in their world and in their culture at this game that they're playing. That's not what he's doing. He's pointing out that not only is their interpretation of the Sabbath law wrong, their whole culture of these dinner parties and trying to earn honor and glory for themselves is wrong. Their culture of this does not reflect God's character. And they need a new culture. They need a new way of thinking and of living. Their culture does not reflect God's character. Now what Jesus is proposing is not a new thing. This is not new to the world. This is not, should not be new to even the Pharisees who know the Old Testament very well. In Proverbs 29, we read, "...one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit..." will obtain honor. Proverbs 29:23. We also see this concept in James chapter 4, where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then later, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. From James chapter 4. So it's out of great mercy that God desires for the sick and the needy to be raised up. And it's out of this same mercy that God desires that the proud would be humbled. A raising up and a lowering. So for us today, we must realize that we all are sick and we need lifted up like the sun or the ox in the well. Romans chapter three says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sick. We are all in need of rescue. We need to be saved. Romans 3 continues after saying we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's God's gift of grace that we can be saved, that we are justified. Even though we have fallen short like into a well, we are saved by the gift of God, not that we deserve it, but it's His gift, it's grace, and it's through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then it continues to say that this redemption, the lifting up that we need spiritually, comes and is received by faith. We receive the salvation of God through Jesus by faith. Now, not only do we identify, though, with the sick and lowly in this passage of needing to be lifted up, But we also know from Scripture that we are all prideful as well. We also need to be humbled. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're doing our own thing. We desire for ourselves to be honored and glorified. Even Christians today, we still find ourselves wanting to do our own thing. Many times we want to... We want our own glory. We want our own honor. But Isaiah continues to say that the Lord has laid on him, that is, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we have gone our own way, but God has taken our sin and has put it on Jesus. Even though we have gone our own way and we like to go our own way, we see from Scripture that the mercy of God to save us through the blood of Jesus Even before we repented and believed, like it says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ died for us even before we turned to God, even while we were in our sin, going our own way, prideful, just like the Pharisees that we see in this passage. So it's the saving work of Jesus that brings us into the satisfying status as God's children. It's the saving work of Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that brings us into the status, the position of God's children. And that is a satisfying position. It's not low like the lowly that need to be lifted up, and it's not proud like the Pharisee who are self-righteous and think they know everything. But it's the satisfying position, the satisfying status as God's children. That's what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, when we put our faith in Him, we enter His kingdom, we enter His family as God's children, then we have the status of His children. 1 Peter chapter 1 helps us to understand this idea even more. It says, According to His great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's God who has caused us to be born again. We are born into life in God's kingdom. And later it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So as children, we don't want to do the same things we used to do. We live in a different culture. We live in a different way as those who have a different culture. Paul continues to talk about how our status as children, never changes based on what we do. So once we're a child of God, He protects us as His own because our status as God's children is dependent on what Jesus did on the cross, not on our own works. It's not dependent on what we do. So what we do cannot make us lose this status as God's children. We're not going to be born again into God's kingdom and then become spiritually dead again. So because our status as God's children is not based on our own work to get there, but on Jesus, it cannot be taken away because of our disobedience. Now, as Paul says in Romans, this does not give us license or a means to sin. This does not mean we should sin and not care about it. We still do care because we are God's children. But when we sin, we repent and we can be confident that God forgives us of those sins as we repent of them. I think John Bunyan summarizes this so well. John Bunyan was a pastor in England in the 1600s. He tells the story of his conversion, saying that he suddenly realized that the righteousness he needed was not within himself. He couldn't do enough to make himself right before God. But his righteousness that He needed was in heaven. He describes it in this way. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, my God could not say of me, He is without my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The last phrase is key. We think about our righteousness that we have. He says, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So our righteousness is there, always before God, because our righteousness is Jesus Christ Himself. That's how we get our status. That's where our position is as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're listening today please know that you're both sick spiritually and prideful like the Pharisees. And we have all been in that same position, looking for honor and glory in all the wrong places. But today, friend, put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and enter into the eternal and all-satisfying status, place as a child of God. Christians, today we must be quick and ready to repent of the pride that we have that resembles the Pharisees' pride. We must leave behind the idea of gaining more glory and honor and worth from our money, from our career, from our popularity, even from our good works. We cannot earn more status with God. Remember, our righteousness is before God. Our righteousness is Jesus Christ. But we must live in the new and better culture of God's kingdom, knowing that our righteousness is secure because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So the lowly are lifted up, the proud are humbled. Let's now go to point number two. The poor are valued. Let's look at verse 12. He said also to the man who invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you are repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So we see here that Jesus changes His, his gaze from the party guests now he looks at the party host, the man who invited all the people. Now remember, the the dinner host is not generous by throwing a party. He's motivated by his own desire for honor and status among the community. He wants to obligate others to invite him to parties and seat him in a good place. So the struggle here was wanting people of high standing to come to his party. He wants people with high standing to come, and then he would be invited to their party. So he would continually work the ladder, move up the ladder of the community. But look at the upside-down way of thinking that Jesus proposes to the host. He says to the host, but he says this so that everyone can hear. He says, instead of inviting people who can repay you, who can invite you to their parties, invite those who have no way to repay you. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Think about how shocking it would have been for the guests and the hosts to hear this proposal. This culture system that prized reciprocity, the repayment of invitations. And here Jesus is saying, throw that out. Invite the poor and the crippled. Those who you think have no value, invite those people. That's who you should have here. I think a comparison for today might be at our work. Think of someone at your work that you don't really like. Doesn't take very long, does it? <laughs> someone who's maybe close to you, a coworker, maybe you are immediate boss. Consider, instead of working on your own reputation at work, what if you wrote a strong, convincing letter of recommendation for that person to get a promotion? What if you spent time helping them get promoted and more salary rather than yourself? That sounds pretty gross. Why in the world would we want to do that? Give up on my career to help others advance, people I don't even like? That's crazy. Well, that's just how crazy Jesus' advice is to the hosts of this party, and to those people who are listening. Jesus is saying that this is following Him is not just some side project. It's not a have a career or have a party in the same way and follow Jesus, but following Him turns the whole game, the whole culture upside down. call to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior is a call to a new and better culture. In verse 14, it says, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Saying the reward is in heaven for those who would follow this new way of living. Not here on earth. There's not a way for the guest to repay. And notice that it's the resurrection of the just. The just are those who have put their faith in Jesus. So Jesus is not saying to invite the poor or the marginalized to a party, and you will get into heaven. That's not the message here. He's showing that those who are in Christ, those who are in God's kingdom, they live out the culture of the kingdom of God. And that culture values the poor, values the marginalized, values those who seem to the world to be valueless. So think about your own home culture How does your home culture value people? How do you show honor or approval or praise? Think about how our online communities show that. I mentioned earlier with followers and likes and shares, comments, oh, you look so good, or that's hilarious, or you're so smart. We look for those things, and we want them. But for the sake of the gospel... Would you be willing to be inconvenienced with no repayment here on earth? When we live in the new and better culture of God's kingdom, it doesn't mean that we leave this world, but we live differently in this world. Just as I live in Shanghai with a culture from America, and that shows forth in even the things that I say and that I do. You notice that. Most people know I'm from America even without asking that becomes obvious. We want to live in such a way that the culture of the kingdom of God shows through, that people know that we are part of God's kingdom, even before we say anything about it, that it's obvious to others how we live, that that culture shines through into our lives, defines who we are. We also want to consider, think about, and pray about how we can be how we can show value to those who the world, who our community, views as valueless. We, too, are called to show the poor, both physically and spiritually, that they have value. We can do this by meeting needs, physically meeting needs, giving to the poor. But that's not all that we're called to do. We also should be active in sharing the good news of Jesus as we meet physical needs I think in this city, it's sometimes hard to know where the physical needs are. There's not loads of extremely poor people in our city, readily visible. So we need to pray that God would open our eyes to see the needs of our community. How can we help people around us? How can we show value to people who the world sees as valueless or with very little value? But we do know that there are many, many people who are spiritually poor all around us. There are hopeless and helpless people in our offices, in our neighborhoods, and they need to hear the good news that Jesus is the Savior for them. So please pray with me for the opportunity to help the poor, and also pray with me for the opportunity and the boldness to share the gospel of Jesus with the spiritually poor around us. So we see here from this passage that poor are valued in the kingdom of heaven. And we also want to value the poor in the same way. Our final characteristic of the culture of God's kingdom that we'll look at today is this. Number three, the outcasts are brought in. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who were invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So someone at the party calls out to Jesus a blessing, this blessing. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus responds with this parable about a banquet. Not a small banquet, but a great one with many people who were invited. But it says, when the party was all ready, the food was hot, the table was set, the servant went to gather those who had been invited. They were invited and said they could come. There needed to be some invitation so the host would know how much food to prepare and how many places to set out. But now they're going back on their agreement to come. They're now asking for excuse not to attend the party. None of the guests want to come. In one way or another, they make excuses. They're obviously well-to-do. One of them has just bought property that he wants to go look at. Only rich people buy property and then go look at it. Most of us would need to see it before we buy it. The other has five yoke of oxen. That's ten oxen. This is enough to care for and to farm a very large amount of land. Now, these excuses seem to be just excuses. All the guests knew the party was coming. They were invited. They had agreed to come, but at the last minute, they're rejecting the invitation. This would have been a huge slap in the face to the host. He would have been put to shame by those invited. He looks really bad when no one shows up. We see in verse 21 his reaction. Then the master of the house became angry. His anger changes his tune. His mind changes at this point about the game that he's been playing. I'll honor you if you honor me. He's now been dishonored, and we see a change completely. Verse 21, he says, Go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and look who he's bringing in. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Instead of compelling the guests who he's already invited. He's going out now and inviting in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame, the people that Jesus talked about earlier. And we see in verse 22 that there's still room. They've brought in all those people, but there's still room. So he goes and says, go even further out. So first it was the city. Now here, the highways and the hedges. Go out of town and find people that that are on their way out there. The outcasts. Of the outcasts of the land, who are who are on the highways, bring them in as well. The man here, the host, is living out the parable that Jesus talked about. He's living out what Jesus had recommended earlier. He's rejected the culture of the times, and he's embraced a God-like desire to fill his house with those who cannot repay him. We see in verse 24 that the parable ends with the master saying that none. Of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This probably is not a threat, but it's an indication of his heart change. He's done with that way of living and that way of thinking. And now he's on to this new and better culture of the kingdom of God. So for us, we should think about who are the outcasts in our world today and how do we bring them in? I think there are definitely similar categories of the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. and we sh- But we also should consider, is there others that we are missing? Who has been sent out or who is outside? Who might feel like an outcast that needs to be brought in? Here at WSBC members, we should consider how we interact with people who are here, especially who are non-members. Who do you talk to after the service? I think we do pretty well in many of these cases. I hear and see a lot of members talking to newcomers and inviting them to lunch or to Bible study during the week. So I commend you for that. But we also want to pay attention. We don't want to be lazy and continue to push outside someone who needs to be brought in. We should carefully consider what we do. Who might we need to bring in? I think in some cases, some people who are outcasts or feel like an outcast, they might be there somewhat by their choice. Not all outcasts are pushed there. Some want to be distant because it's safer or it's easier. Maybe it's less painful or less shameful. Notice the command in verse 23. He says, Go to the highways and the hedges, and look at the next part, and compel people to come in. To compel is to convince, to beg, to urge In some cases, drag. So as God's people, we want to be compelling people to come in, pursuing people. Some people who may feel like outcasts in our community, and when they visit our church could be possibly single parents or even foreigners who come, especially if there's no one from their home country among our group. Sometimes non-native English speakers can feel like outcasts because we speak English and speak it very fast. Also friends who have same-sex attraction may feel like outcasts when they visit. Those who have been abused, I wonder even those who maybe have a criminal record or someone who has abused others, someone with deep shame for sin that they've committed. They also may feel like an outcast. We wanna be aware And we don't have to know why someone is an outcast or that they feel that way. But we do want to recognize that there is the feeling of being pushed out or shut out or being on the outside. And as a church, we want to live in the culture of the kingdom of God in such a way that we show mercy and kindness to those who might feel like they are on the outside. I think this starts with being a friend to each person. How would you want a friend to treat you? We want to think about those things and do that for others. A friend is inviting, inviting in conversation to go deeper, listening in that conversation without judging or trying to correct immediately. Being a friend is sharing life over a meal or coffee. So it starts with being a friend to compel those who may feel like they're on the outside to to come in We're a group of individuals, like I mentioned earlier, with a wide range of cultural backgrounds. And we will, at some point, experience conflict between our home cultures. When you experience that conflict, you might be tempted to say, well, that's not how we do it back home, or that's not how my culture handles this situation. When you think those things or say those things, Consider your heart. Check yourself there. Your culture and my culture is not righteous in every way. There would definitely be some good aspects of each culture, but none are righteous the way God is righteous. Now, God does not intend for His culture to reflect or to be like Western culture or to be like Eastern culture or to be like Middle Eastern culture. No, the culture of God's kingdom is new and better than any culture on earth because it reflects the character of God in every way. And we are called to live with that culture, with that culture mindset, one that reflects the character of God in every way. So it's by the power and the wisdom of God and His Word that we are called to live in the new and better culture of the kingdom of God as his children. Let's pray. God, you are our Lord and King. Lord, we ask as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, we ask that your kingdom would come and we know your kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to live as members of your kingdom. We pray that your kingdom culture would shine through us into the world around us. Help us by your power to show mercy and kindness to the sick, to the poor, to the outcasts. We ask for your wisdom and for your power to do this, and we trust that you will give us what we need. We praise you, God, our Lord and our King, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.